aftermath of this Supreme Court fight. I'm wondering if we've come to a place of irreconcilable differences for the United States. That plus Nikki Haley resigns at the UN. That and more on today's Corey Truax Show. It is never fun to open a show with an apology, but I am going to open with one of those in just a moment. My name is Corey Truax. We are dedicated to better, smarter talk about everything here on the Corey Truax Show. Glad to have you with us. If you're listening live on Christian Talk 660 on Saturday morning, welcome. And if you are listening to the podcast in the many, many places where it is distributed, thank you for doing so. Amongst many other things, I am also the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church meets at Greenville High School. That's downtown Greenville here in the upstate of South Carolina. You are cordially invited any given Sunday morning to Beachwood Church. We meet at 1030 at Greenville High School. So, it's not fun to apologize, but I listened back, not in totality, I'm not that much of a narcissist, but I did listen back to chunks of the last three shows. The last three shows, the last three episodes, were primarily, not exclusively, but primarily, about Brett Kavanaugh and the confirmation fight. I don't regret the content. I think I do regret the tone. A good friend, Paul, said don't you know, don't don't apologize for the tone we're we're talking here about a situation where uh, people's lives could get ruined that's worth getting fired up about and he's also right it's it's worth being passionate about but i listened back to myself and wondered how on earth would you ever convince anybody how on earth would you actually make progress with someone who thinks different differently than you do with that tone so even if you're right, even if you're righteous, are you effective? That's the question I came to ask myself. And the answer is no. And so if the goal of discourse, whether that be here on radio, in podcast, in, uh, in social media, and in person, believe it or not, people talk to each other face-to-face. If the goal is coming to a place of, a, of at least a, a kind disagreement or coming to a place where you can reconcile some differences, coming to a place where you walk away knowing, I don't think like that person, and that person doesn't think like me, but they're a decent human being, and I don't need to destroy them, they're not going to try to destroy me. If that's the goal of discourse, I probably didn't help with the tone. And so I open today with that, that uh, this this has been an embittered fight. I think we've seen that with the radicalization we've seen on televi- on, t- on television. And as, as mature as I think of myself as, as, as intellectual as I think of myself as, there were some em- emotional reactions to what I saw as injustice that did not come across well. And so for it, I think it's worth apologizing when you're wrong. And uh, I was. Not necessarily the content, not what I said, but how I said it uh, was not, not effective. Which leads me to, the, to our second point here. This is a big discussion I want to have today. I wonder if we do have irreconcilable differences in the United States. Is is there a way back after this? We, we've been fighting for so long, the different sides of America, the different interest groups and different ideologies. We've been fighting for so long. I wonder, can we reconcile? Is there a path back to national unity? Or are we at an impasse? Are we at a place where we either do need to start breaking up the country, we either need to start 
allowing some secession. We need to start thinking about I have some actual, by the way, I have some solutions I, I want to try to get to that doesn't require secession and breaking up the country. But I, I heard one commentator say that we're at a spot where we either are going to have to break up the country or we just have to recognize that the next step is violence. That the next step is going to be there's fighting. There's fighting in the streets. There's actual violence uh, from one side to another. And you're even starting to get that language from from some people. I, I, maybe you saw the column widely so, widely distributed from either the New York Times or Washington Post. Oh no, uh, it might have been the Daily Mail. Whatever the case, the source is not important to the content. The content was what Democrats have learned from this process is they need to be more ruthless. That was the word used, more ruthless. And so the lesson learned was we we need to do more than find people to accuse a man of organized gang rape. We need to do more than that. We need to have a more ruthless strategy. If you need evidence of that, I mean, it, Maxine Waters is actually straight telling people, you need to go to people's homes. You need to confront Republicans wherever they are. I mean, there was some of the audio that came out uh, from some of the things going on going on around the Capitol. I mean, the protests going around the Capitol. There was one person that just said to a pro Kavanaugh person, "You are subhuman. We are finished being polite." I mean, that's a. And then there, there's the people that are running Ted Cruz at a restaurants, and and then folks that are saying that's great. That's a good thing. And so you have you you have the. The Maxine Waters, then you have Cory Booker. I mean, he, he said something similar. That's a leader. He's probably going to run for president. And we have that leader out there saying, you need to activists that will get up in the face of some Congress people. Hillary Clinton said this week in an interview, you know, this is not a time for civility. And then Eric Holder, this week, I mean, just this week, said this. Michelle says that, you know, when they go low, we go high. No. No. When they go low, we kick them. And the applause for that goes on for a while. He's quoting Michelle Obama during the 2016 campaign of the the incivility of Donald Trump. He's he, he's not washed clean of this. She says, when they go low, we go high. It was supposed to be a statement of civility, a statement of dignity. And here's Eric Holder, Barack Obama's attorney general out there saying, no, when we when they go low, we kick them. Th- this environment is where is where we are. And you make it makes you wonder, are we at all reconcilable or do we have to find some way uh, to either separate us and not be governed with this many people or are there some ways back? And so I, I think I do have some ways back I want to try to give you today as well. But before we do that, I want to try to give this some biblical underpinning. Because I think there's a question on why. Why would that be the goal? Why would reconciliation be the goal? Uh, why would, uh, from a Christian perspective, are you involved in these involved in these things at all? Uh, and so I just want to remind the, the primarily Christian audience of the show of something. You know, we have good biblical doctrine that, that we built over, that we haven't built, that the Bible gave us and, and we have systemized over the years on how to think about government. So through Romans 13, through 1 Peter, uh, you have these uh, this, this genuine question from the early Christian, well, if, I'm, if I have a king, Jesus, do I obey the laws of the land? And they, re- they organize for us that, yes, you, that's part of, part of being a Christian, actually, is recognizing that God 
ordained governments as a as a method whereby the wicked are punished and the good are rewarded to bring order to chaos. And so you, you obey the laws, you honor those uh, that are uh, ordained of God as authorities, you pray for them. But then you have the question of, well, okay, so if we respect and we, and we obey the laws, well, what is my responsibility in civics? What is my responsibility to reconcile with those who think differently? What am I trying to work for in the political and civic world from a Christian perspective? And that really comes primarily from who we are as Christians in the in a given culture that we think of ourselves as exiles. We are not primarily from the country where we reside. We're really from the kingdom of God. And so our call then is a few things. So we have the idea of salt and light. So where the civic culture is is rancid and rotten and needs to be cured, you could put some salt on it. Where where it needs to be preserved, they can, salt can do that. It, it can kill some of the infection in the civic culture. We need to shine some light on those things where it is dark. So there's the salt and light concept. There's certainly the idea in Galatians that we do good to those. Uh, we do good to everybody. That's what, that's what Galatians says. We do good to everybody, but especially those of the household of faith. But you can't leave out the first part of that, which is be good to everybody. And then primarily, I think the one I want to give you the most is in Jeremiah 29, not 29.11, which gets used really poorly a lot on mugs and t-shirts and sermons, unfortunately, uh, but the rest of Jeremiah 29. So what you have in Jeremiah 29 is a bunch of Israelites. They've been taken away into exile. So they're in a country where they don't belong. They're not home in Jerusalem. So that's, that should be how the Christian feels. Not at home. We're waiting for a city not built with hands. Not built with hands. You know, we are going. Uh, we're waiting for the kingdom of God to come in its fullness. So we're not from here. We're not home. And so here is some instructions to the Israelites: while you're not home, while you're in exile in another country where you have to be there, here's some instruction for you. And that instruction can be applied to the Christian that that lives in this kind of world. Well, what should we be doing until we're home? And Jeremiah's instruction is really practical stuff. He says, well, plant a garden and eat the fruit of it. Build a business. And now I'm paraphrasing. Build a business. Get married. Have kids. Get involved in the arts. This is the call to the Christian living in a pagan society. This is the call to the Christian living exiled, exiled in this culture. Is Well, do here's the actual, back to the actual text. The text says, to work for the welfare of the city. And that can be expanded to the state, to the country, where you are, where God has you while you're in exile, work for the good of it. And I think it's inarguable one of the ways we do that is through politics, but it's not the only way. It's probably not even the most important way in working through government. So it's certainly part of the Christian ethic to look at the civic culture, see that it's broken, see that there's, there's factions here and tribes here that hate each other. And, and it's causing unrest, and it's causing anxiety, and it's causing fear. So, for the Christian who wants to work for the welfare of the city, the Christian who wants to be salt and light and to do good to everybody, especially those of the household of faith, we would then stop and think, is there a way to make this better? Is there a way to reconcile a people that hates each other this much? So, with that backdrop, the backdrop that we just came through, all this giant problem, and we do have, we are motivated to be a part of the solution. I'm going to take a break, come back, and start talking about some very practical steps. What are some things we should should be doing and shouldn't be doing if we're going to reconcile? 
And ultimately, if we can't, what happens next? Also, again, I want to try to talk about Nikki Haley today and her resignation from the U.N. So stick with us for a packed and important the remainder of the Corey Act Show. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show. Glad to have you with us. So, oh, I guess I should do the, uh, the, the plug thing before I just dive back in. So, hi. Uh, com. You can get uh, more of my show there. You can get it at SoundCloud, iTunes, Apple Podcast, Anchor, uh, and then it's, oh yeah, Spotify. That's the one that's growing the fastest, those of you that are listening on Spotify. I should also mention two other things. Uh, first, shout out to Blacktop Media. I should give them more credit. You know, They built my website. They were very much responsible for getting me onto iTunes. That is a good group. Um, so if you had a church, you have a business that uh, is looking to grow your uh, your your brand, you're trying to get more exposure, uh, talk to the guys at Blacktop. Google them, look for them on Facebook. Uh, that's certainly some folks to connect with. And then also for me, on Anchor, if you use that app, so the the word Anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R, the thing you put in the ocean if you're in a boat and you want to stay where you are, there's, they've actually created now a way in which you can give to the show. It's connected directly to me. So if you like what we're doing, you think it's important, and you want to help us do the show, you can go donate right there on Anchor, and it will be highly appreciated if you would. Always appreciated when you tell someone about the show. So here's what we've done. We've underpinned. We've got a, this massive problem of how much we hate each other. And for the Christian perspective, we certainly have an interest. It's not our only interest. We have an interest in trying to help solve that problem. Certainly the first way we help solve that problem is spread the gospel. We talk That's evangelism. I was talking with some folks this week. Uh, here's another shameless self-promotion. I'm on another podcast. Uh, I encourage you to go find Westminster uh, Effects Podcast. This is from Cody Fields. Cody's an entrepreneur, which is way better than I could ever be. I don't know how to work for myself. It's not a skill I have. Uh, but those guys have really interesting conversations over on their podcast. Uh, C- Cody has his own company um, called Westminster Effects. It's called the Westminster Effects Doxology Podcast, by the way. They have interesting the- theological discussions, and they had me on to talk about the Christian's role in politics. And I said to them here, and you should go listen to me talking to them on the uh, Westminster Effects Doxology podcast, that ultimately government is downstream of culture. So uh, the, it's the culture that makes the people, and the people are make the voters, and the voters make the government. So if you really want to change the government in politics, that's your role maybe in uh, and working for the welfare of the city, as Jeremiah 29 says, well, then your best shot is to change the people because if you change the people, then you change the voters, and the voters can then change the government. But here's some other ideas. Here's some things we can do well in the aftermath of this Kavanaugh disaster that uh, maybe can help us get back to reconciliation. So one, guys who wanted Kavanaugh and ladies, you who wanted Kavanaugh confirmed. That's me too. I wanted Kavanaugh confirmed. Don't gloat. Gloating doesn't help. It only drives more of a wedge between you and the people that disagreed with you. Uh, gloating is unbecoming. It is an unchristian thing to do, to shove in the face of those who disagreed your victory and try to rub their nose in it. It's the wrong thing to do. You may think it feels good. Now, there's a lot of sin that feels good. Okay, So don't do that. Don't gloat. And here's how I... I can connect this to you. After the Oberfell decision and the Supreme Court took authority on themselves they do not have and created homosexual marriage across the country, do you remember what President Obama did that night? They were they had already obviously knew it was coming. They turned the White House rainbow. They put lights on the White House to celebrate 
despite the fact that a giant chunk of the country was really heartbroken about the decision. But they bragged. They gloated. That did not help heal that divide. You might remember after the Obamacare ruling. I don't think I've ever been more upset about a political outcome than the Supreme Court deciding wrongly. They were wrong that there, there's the federal government has the ability to make you buy something. The individual mandate was constitutional because John Roberts changed it. He just decided, no, it says uh, ta- fine, but we're going to call it a tax. It'll be fine. But there was bragging. There was celebration over that. That didn't help heal the divide. Just think back to those times. Don't be those people. If you disliked it when Obama bragged about the gay marriage decision, if you disliked the Obamacare bragging, don't brag. Don't gloat over this. It only drives the wedge further. If your interest is the utter destruction of your enemies, maybe fine brag. That's not supposed to be our goal. Our goal isn't to destroy people. We actually do want to work for the welfare of the city, and reconciliation amongst countrymen is better than countrymen destroying each other. So don't gloat. Number two, make some effort to understand. This is for both sides. If you didn't want Kavanaugh confirmed, I don't think those folks made a good effort to understand the confirmed Kavanaugh people, and the confirmed Kavanaugh people didn't do a good job of understanding the others. I should recognize it's hard for someone like me and those that agree with me, maybe not me specifically because I'm naturally curious and naturally wanting to to look at other points of view. But for the average American, it's hard to look at what was happening in D.C., those riots, those what seemed like insane people, those mobs, it's hard to look at them and go, I want to try to understand them. But we got to put the effort in. Maybe you even saw what I saw. I, I think it's the dumbest take I've ever seen published in a newspaper. It, it's, it was really, I, I use that word denotatively. You know, people say dumb like it's this insult. But it actually is, there's a definition to it. It's, it's unintelligent. It was, a, it was an unintellectual thing. The title of it in the New York Times was, White Women Come and Get Your People. And this, the argument there was white men, the Kavanaugh types, they're so so set on their privilege and their power. White women, you're the ones that are just valuing your whiteness, and so you're not value, valuing your womanness, and so you won't stop the terrible white men. It's a terrible take. It's a bad take. But we can make fun of it, or we can ask, how'd you get there? Have some curiosity about the the other perspective so be so don't don't brag don't gloat but also be curious try the best you can even when they look insane try to understand maybe try to look deeper beyond their antics beyond the way they're behaving and look to what what they might be trying to get across as a point listen these these folks who were anti-kavanaugh and doing the writing and the the crying and the screaming and the shrieking. They're not good at making their point. But man, I know that I've made I've made points poorly before. And I sure would love the the charity of someone making an effort to hear what I was trying to say, even if I was saying it poorly. 
let's try to be people who are being charitable, that we're trying to hear the good point, even though it's coming across like they're insane. It is a good idea for no matter what side you're on. It would be a good idea to recognize that there are honest people in all of the movements that have seen in, seemed insane to you. Okay, so uh, let's go across the spectrum. Go back to the Tea Party. You're listening to me and you thought the Tea Party was a bunch of racist bigots and crazy people dressing up with uh, colonial garb. That was your impression. Well, recognize that there are some normal people in the Tea Party. That they had some smart things to say. They weren't just insane. You know, we go back to Occupy, Occupy, Occupy Wall Street. They were in Bryant Park and a couple other parks in New York City back then and behaving in ways that I would say was crazy, was insane. But what would happen if the Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party people didn't assume the other was crazy and they asked some questions and they tried to look at what your, what's your grievance, what's your issue? This one's hard for me. The Trump people. They were some of the most objectionable people in politics. They've got some kind of point. Maybe it's time to be curious. Maybe it's time to be patient. Maybe it's time to try to listen a little bit. And I'm trying to apply that now to the Kavanaugh protester who, as far as I could tell, was acting insane. Just absolute banshees. Maybe it's time to listen a little bit, ask some questions. I think it'd be healthy for all of us to ask a question about fear because that's how this feels to me is that sides literally fear each other. If you look at how the Kavanaugh protesters were behaving, that is the behavior of someone who's terrified. They think something so scary is coming for them that's going to wreck them. That's how you behave when you think there's a disaster coming your way. You try to tear open the doors of the Supreme Court. Maybe it's maybe that's a good question to ponder. Hey, this last few weeks, what were you afraid of? So th- there's some ideas on... Don't make this worse. Don't gloat. Make an effort to understand. Recognize that there are some honest people in every movement. And try to find the honest people. Don't try to judge the entire movement off the worst of the people. Try to find the best of them and then try to listen. Now I have two ideas. If we can stick together, this has got. I think this has to happen. We are going to have to rediscover federalism. Federalism comes from the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, where we decided, uh, like in the Tenth Amendment specifically, it says, hey, so all the stuff in this document, in this Constitution, if we didn't say the federal government could do it, if it's not enumerated, if it's not a responsibility of the federal government, and then we just kind of forgot it, like we didn't say anything about it, just assume that goes to the states. Never assume it goes to the federal government. So when in doubt, give it to the states. The states get to do it. Now, we've wrecked federalism. It's primarily been the left that wrecked federalism. They like for Washington, D.C. to rule everything, for one government to try to rule over 320 million people, which, of course, that's going to go poorly. That, that's, it's unruly to have this one policy for that many people. Of course, it's unruly for Bozeman, Montana, and San Francisco, California to have some of the same laws. That's not going to work. The cultures are too different. The people are too different. The situations are too different. I, mean, I think I gave this illustration here recently. Just take Greenville County, South Carolina. You got the, the, the good old country folk of Blue Ridge, and you've got the more, uh, the more metropolitan moving along younger group there in, in Simpsonville, in downtown Greenville. And they have trouble sometimes living in the same county. This is the county of like 
less than a, fewer than a million people. The this is how we maybe we try to bring this up as a, as a way to solve it. The left has actually started to make noise like they're into this. Since Trump was elected, it made them rethink federal government power. Maybe we actually need to start talking about that. That, hey, let, let me reinvigorate an idea. So there was this idea way back in the day before we decided to have the federal government rule everything that states would make their own policy. Maybe we need to give more to the states to do, and then we'll just self-organize. We'll decide, well, the that state's... A, has the policies and the ideology that I like. So I'm going to move to that state. That's that's where my people are. And there's other folks decide, well, I'm going to self-organize my myself. I'm going to self-select to go over to this state in this area because that that has what I want. We we got to get back to federalism. Here's my fear on why we can't. There is some chunk of people on both sides, but I'll go ahead and say it. It's primarily on the left that is uncomfortable with the reality that there are a bunch of people who don't think like them. They're, they are uncomfortable that it's it's a reality. There are people who still think marriage is religious primarily, and then even in civics, it should be it should be preserved for a man and a woman as an institution that undergird, undergirds the entire culture and for the inculcation of values in the next generation. That makes them uncomfortable that anyone thinks that, and they think that that those people need to be shunned and put to the to the bottom of culture until they're eliminated. And so there is this argument inside federalism where the left would just, and some, the right with some things, that they just can't handle that there's people on the same continent that don't think the same, and so they need to meddle in those people's affairs. They need to meddle with those folks that that disagree with them. This is an idea that we might need to revisit and start promoting. Federalism can help us stop hating each other. Let's self-select into smaller groups and not give everything to the federal government. You know, this is this is an argument for getting back to constitutional government. We should ask why does it matter? Why did it matter so much to people that Hillary wasn't president? Why why does it matter to somebody so much that Trump is not president? And it's only because they're so scared of what that power is. Well, maybe that person shouldn't be so powerful. Why did everyone react this way to the to the Kavanaugh hearing from both sides? Because one side sees it as the great hope of overturning the one of the worst judicial decisions of all time that's led to a holocaust of the unborn, and the other side sees it as the end of women's rights. And so, of course, you react this way when you think it's that high cost and that high stakes. Well, what if the, that Supreme Court wasn't that powerful? What if we what if we diminished power from these high just these high places and spread that power out? Maybe we should ask ourselves, do we have a government so powerful that it's scaring us? Do we have a government so overreaching that it's terrifying if the other people control it? And then make that a driving force to, well, let's, let's weaken it. This is stuff that conservatives have said for a long time. The court shouldn't be this powerful. The executive branch shouldn't be this powerful. And at this very moment, the folks on the left would agree the court shouldn't be this powerful. The president shouldn't be this powerful. So let's make fundamental changes to the government itself so that we don't... And by changes, I just mean going back to the original intent. And then we don't have to be so scared of each other because we know there's not enough power in the government to de- to be destroyed by the other side. I mean, I, I saw another theme in this. Stru- structurally, the, the left was complaining about the Senate. This is what happened in the aftermath. 
there was one tweet from a New York Times reporter uh, that said the Senate is this really undemocratic thing that has to change because Montana has whatever, I think it was like an eighth, maybe less than an eighth of the population in New York, and the fact that they get the same amount of votes in the Senate is insane. You know, It's a very undemocratic way to be. Uh, and then they, they did the math. And they did the math factually. I, ch- I fact-checked them. That the senators, the 50 senators that voted for Kavanaugh, the population of those states is appreciably smaller than the population of the states of the senators who voted against Kavanaugh. So their point being that those senators had so they were voting for or in, in on behalf of so many more people, and the Senate's just this ill-designed thing. But that's how it was meant to be. The, the, the design there was that there would be this bicameral solution where not or mob rule couldn't happen, where it couldn't just be tyranny of the majority, where it couldn't be a majority rule situation. And if you go back to the original original intent. A lot of folks don't know this. I think it's the 17th Amendment. The 17th Amendment is when we decided uh, we should popular, popularly vote senators. You know, pre- previous to the 17th Amendment, state legislatures. So if you're listening to me and you're in South Carolina, in Columbia, they chose two senators to go to D.C. You didn't vote on that. The legislators did that. And if you're in North Carolina listening to me, in Raleigh, they, they chose two senators to send to Washington, D.C. You didn't vote for Tom Tillis in North Carolina and Richard Burr. Here in South Carolina, we didn't vote for Lindsey Graham and Tim Scott. That, the legislature sent people to D.C. That was the design. Because the, the design of the Senate was not to ever represent the people. It's actually a false statement historically for a senator to say, I represent the people of South Carolina. No, you're not supposed to. You're actually supposed to state you're supposed to represent the interest of the state, the the state as a concept, the state as a unit of government. The Senate was intended to be set up as a as a bulwark against federal government power. They were there to be in contradistinction to the federal government's interest, that the state's interest would be represented against the federal government's interest, and so against the the mob against the population of all the states, the individual states, would have their interests represented there in the Senate. And now we have the left out there writing these, these, uh, these, uh, these op-eds that are, well, we got to do something about the Senate. we got to change it. Now, granted, I, understand, I actually get their argument. Uh, when you add up those numbers and you see it, that is stark. It's a stark reality. But our, our idea of government, while not perfect, is certainly better than that one. It's better than direct democracy. You know, I got the opportunity this week to. Uh, I had a work study. The work study told was telling me about a test they took, and it, was, it had a lot to do with the Bill of Rights. And I got the opportunity to show this student at North Greenville University the brilliance of the structure of the Bill of Rights. I'm trying to establish here that the the Constitution's great, man. I mean, it's got its flaws, but this is a brilliant document. We should not throw it off haphazardly. Just to give you two examples. Think about the brilliance of the First Amendment and its artistic flow. So the First Amendment gives you the right to religion, or speech, uh, war, uh, yeah, religion, speech, press, assembly, and uh, redress of grievances. And think about the logical flow there. So what they're saying there is they're built on top of each other. Religion, you have a right to believe what you believe. Number two, speech, you have a right to say what you believe. Three, 
you have a right to say what you believe and have it be amplified through the press, through media. At the time, pamphlets and newspapers and now with mass media. So you have a right to believe what you believe, to say what you believe, to say what you believe in an amplified way. Fourth, you have a right to assemble, to use your amplified voice and to gather with others who believe what you believe. To number five, ask the government to change things for a redress of grievances. That's beautiful. That is artistic how they put together the First Amendment. This is also true of the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendments. The The Fourth Amendment is a question of, well, what if I've been accused of something? What can the government do? Well, they can't have unreasonable search and seizure. They're going to have to have a warrant to search. Okay, well, what if it goes beyond accused and I actually, excuse me, I, I don't get just accused of something. I get indicted for something. Uh, well, that's the Fifth Amendment. Well, you don't have to self-incriminate. You don't have to do that. Uh, and they uh, they have to give you a they have to give you a trial. It's got to be speedy if you get accused uh, indicted for something. Okay, well, what if I get convicted of something? Well, that's the Sixth Amendment. The Sixth Amendment is well, they can't give you uh, a uh, a cruel and unusual punishment. They can't give that to you. I simplified some of those, but this is not a government we should haphazardly throw off. It is brilliant. The system, the structure, is a brilliant one. And just to throw it off because you don't like how the Senate works is not a smart thing to do. I understand the argument, but this is a brilliant system that we have. Now, when we come back, though, I do want to try to address that argument. Maybe we are so broken, maybe the times are so different that this system of government is not adequate to govern us anymore, and maybe we do need to have some changes. We're going to talk about that when we return for the final segment of this week's Corey Truax Show. We've got a race through this last one. I have uh, been taking too much time making these points as we're trying to figure out if we can even reconcile in the United States or if it's just time to to break this thing up. I, I think through some federalism and restructuring, restoring the original idea of our government, we actually can reconcile, make the federal government weaker and return to that federalism, make the court less scary, make the presidency less scary, weaken those institutions, and we all have to be less scared if the, quote, other side gets in power. That's what we've been talking about on today's Corey Truax Show. Thank you for sticking with us. But I would hear the argument. Maybe the founders set up a system that it was great. It's been the best one, but it just doesn't work anymore. We just can't use it. In which case, I mean, that that, that is a possibility. I, I, we've got to at least entertain that. We have to entertain. Maybe this doesn't work for this people. You know, the uh, the Madison quote is, this Constitution only works for immoral and religious people. Well, we're not that. Ben Franklin's, the old lore is, he said to somebody after the convention, I've, we've made you a republic if you can keep it. Well, maybe we can't keep it. Maybe we're too broken of a, of, a peop, of, a, of a people group to actually keep this republic. In which case, if the left wants to complain about the system and the structure, I do want to hear that. My idea here is just to return to what we should have been. And, and maybe we have to throw off the, the old terms, but, but going to that fundamental core American belief of individualism, and then federalism, that we spread power out, in which case you don't have to be so scared of the power. Now, very quickly, the effects of this. What are the effects of what's happened with Kavanaugh? And then I want to get to Nikki Haley. Um, I think there's a lot of energy for both sides. There's dueling polls that show Democrats fired up versus Republicans fired up to go vote. It does appear there's a big chunk of women who did come back to the GOP, I think for two reasons after this Kavanaugh thing. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but some big chunk of women came back. Here's why. 
women don't like chaos. Men don't like it either, but it's an insecure feeling to see chaos. And that's what the left did. The left went to Washington, D.C. They caused chaos. They caused insecurity. And I don't think a lot of ladies, especially specifically, it was a lot more suburban ladies, married ladies, tended to come back to the GOP over this. But you don't like seeing that on TV. You don't like seeing the disaster. And then second, I think folks on the left underestimated how sympathetic Kavanaugh can be. I actually had someone say to me, who's a little bit older, that Kavanaugh reminded her of her brother, her adult brother, who's also like in his 50s. I think the left underestimated that he was a sympathetic character. You can see your dad in that. You can see your older uncle, your brother, in what was happening to him. And so some big chunk of whether that was just or not. That's not a point about what's just or not. The point is people saw it that way. So I had this question actually text me. What do you think the, the consequences of this Kavanaugh thing are? Well, there's a lot of energies on both sides. I think some women came back to the GOP. Here's, I think, the biggest thing. We're basically running out of never-Trump conservatives. I'm a never-Trump conservative. We're running out of that breed because that never-Trump group is now looking, looking at it very starkly. What they saw on the left was a group of people willing to destroy a man, to destroy his life. And that seems so destructive, bent on destruction, that they look at Trump and he looks like a hammer. Another commentator says, Trump is a hammer. Sometimes he hits a nail, and that's good. Sometimes he hits a baby. That's bad. But he's a a hammer, and sometimes he's he's picking the, the right enemy. And so I tell you, if there's one group that did come out of it better, it is the GOP. They They became more unified. Folks that I never thought would have nice things to say about the president are at least r- trying to rally around Republicans and thinking about the president as the vehicle to stop the madness of the Democrats. Basically, for Democrats, all you had to do in this process was don't be crazy, don't terrify people, and you weren't able to do that. And so now you have a group of people who are like me, and I'm still a never-Trump conservative, but people who are in my tribe look at you and are so terrified of how you've behaved, they are going the other direction. And so and I think my final thought... Um, you know, funny fact on the end of this is Kavanaugh was the least attractive choice for conservatives like me. He ends up getting the seat. And I tell you, I, I think the, the final joke's going to be like folks, on folks, like, uh, on, like me, because I don't think he's a vote to overturn Roe, unfortunately. Final thought, uh, Nikki Haley. Uh, here's what I think just happened. Uh, I think she's ready to make some money, for one, some real, really big money. She's going to get a giant book deal, go on a speaking tour. I think she's ready to make some money, but also this. Uh, Nikki Haley resigning from the U.N. After the midterms, here is the prediction. Uh, Donald Trump will remove Jeff Sessions. He will no longer be the attorney general. Lindsey Graham spent the last three, three weeks auditioning for the position. That's why he has changed his mannerisms so deeply. And so he was auditioning to be attorney general. Trump will appoint Lindsey Graham to Attorney General, and then Nikki Haley will be appointed by Governor Henry McMaster to the Senate, and then she will use that springboard to run for president probably in 2024. You know, this is an interesting relationship that Donald Trump has had with South Carolina officials, and because McMaster was the first major political figure to endorse Donald Trump for president, and they've been doing favors for each other ever since. So uh, it was a favor of uh, four, uh, like Trump, Trump paid back um, uh, McMaster by appointing Haley. So Haley's no longer governor, so McMaster gets to be elevated. And then he appoints Mick Mulvaney 
to, uh, to, to several positions in Washington. And Mulvaney would have been the biggest rival for governor for McMaster. So Trump takes away McMaster's biggest rivals in the state. That was a payback. And now this is equal. The payback is then Trump says to McMaster, well, Haley wants the Senate seat, and and now that the horses are being traded. That's what's happening there. Uh, I thought she was a pretty good uh, U.N. ambassador. Uh, you know, she wasn't, one of, wasn't a fantastic governor, but I'll admit, I have a... Like, I have an admiration for Nikki Haley. We don't agree on all things. You know, I wonder how much of a political animal she is versus, you know, an ideological person. But uh, that's that's my analysis on Nikki Haley. I got some questions on that one as well. Big theme for today. I'd love to see us reconcile, but we have to do it by federalism and by weakening some of these institutions everyone is so afraid of. One more uh, quick reminder, the Westminster Effects Doxology podcast. Go find that out there where all my podcasts are. That's where it is. You can hear me talk to those guys about the Christian's role in politics and government. Please do it. All right, let's do sports. Talking sports on the Corey Act Show with our sports correspondent. His name is Heath Powell. Hello there, sir. Hello. Uh, we had three unbeatens fall from the ranks of the unbeaten. Yes, we did. Of the three. So Oklahoma getting beaten by Tech. Oh, by the way, that's college football for those of you who don't, uh, don't know that we're ta- <laughs> that's what we're talking about here. Uh, Oklahoma lost to Texas. Kentucky lost to Texas A&M. And LSU lost to Florida. Which one surprised you the most? I'll have to say LSU, I guess. Me too. Because I wasn't that surprised that Kentucky lost because I've seen Texas A&M play. I know how how good they are. Texas is always giving Oklahoma a good game. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, now this was the highest scoring Red River rivalry game thus far. Well it done. Is, it's hard to say. That's why I had to go slow. That's, you, you did well with it. Better than I would have. Um, but yeah, I think that was the most surprising. To me, it was because it's a opponent. Right. It was just Florida. I don't think Florida's that good. I don't think they're that good either. And the thing with Texas, Oklahoma, all you have to do is outscore Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And I knew Texas could score. Their defense is not horrible. Now, they were up by 21 in the fourth quarter, and Oklahoma came back and tied the game in the fourth quarter. Um, but That's just like a Big 12 it's game. It's a Big 12 game. It's 48-45. In overtime, right? Or was it right at the end of every no, regulation? The, the freshman kicker made a like, 40-yarder to win the game. So, it was pretty neat. But I wasn't surprised by that. So, now very few unbeaten teams left. That matters a little less now that we're in the playoff era. Right. But it still matters. It matters. To be unbeaten. But, but – the first half of the season is over. Second half is to come. So I think there's a lot more shakeup going to happen. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's still on the – you just go to the SEC. Yep. Oh, that's another one yesterday. Did, did Auburn lose? It was Auburn-Boston Mississippi Auburn, State. Yeah, I think they did. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, because Nick Fitzgerald was just running all over them. Goodness. And so – He actually broke Tebow's quarterback rushing record. That's cool. Yep. Good for him. He's a decent guy. Yeah, I like him. Um, a little uh, piece of trivia for everybody. Dating Miss South Carolina in 2016. There you go. A guy from, uh, guy from Mississippi <laughs> State. That's, uh, I only saw that because he put it on Instagram. Right. He's an Instagram of guy. Of course he did. Um, and, of course, I'm the one that br- – I know, wouldn't <laughs> you put it out there if you were, uh, if you were Nick Sergerald? In any event, uh, so Auburn getting beat, all the, and those, t- those teams dropping from the ranks of the unbeaten, I think do crystallize this a little bit yep. more uh, on who's still eligible or at least what you're looking t- towards the uh, college football playoff. Notre Dame. Are you a believer now? That's the other one I wanted to get to before we get to Clemson. No, the, not really. Not, not yet. yet. There, I mean, Blacksburg is, is a tough place to play. I get it. Inner Sandman, I get it. I get the atmosphere. But, you know, they're running a transfer quarterback who, who was 0-15 at Kansas in two years. I mean, 
And it's not a knock on him. Nobody's going to win at Kansas as a quarterback. No. Uh, I thought he did a good job. But Notre Dame is not facing a full-strength Virginia Tech team. Um, I think they look good. I do. But, I, you know, I need to see a little more from, from Notre Dame first. I don't know. Did they Notre Dame it? was one of those teams where they win four games or four, and all of a sudden, you know, they're quote-unquote back. Yep. Um, it's a long season, you know, and I think you have to prove it more than just – one game. I'm trying to look at the Notre Dame schedule to see if they're going to have the chance to impress you. Right. Because um, I think they have Pittsburgh. I knew they had Navy left. They have Northwestern left. They have Syracuse and Southern California. See, I mean. Clemson and I think Notre Dame have similar issues. They do. And it's not the it's not their fault. Right. Clemson did not know that Florida State was going to be horrible this year. Yeah. They didn't. Uh, it was a, I think that was a huge win at Texas A&M. Yeah, it was. I think Kyle Field is – an extremely hard place to get out of with a win. Especially week two. Week two, right. I mean, it's, maybe week eight is probably not even close. I agree. Yeah. Um, team, college football specifically, you know, I, our coach at North Greenville, he, he says there's no bigger difference between your, your team on week two than it was on week one. Like, right. there's no bi- – you, you really grow up. But in a college world, you get halfway through the season, and like, consider that with Clemson. Kelly Bryant was still the quarterback. Right. I mean, there's this is a different Clemson team now. This is, a, this is an entirely different team than they were – I think four weeks ago. This team goes in to Texas A&M. Keeps this the team pedal goes into Texas A&M, and it's not a yeah. close game. Before we get to the Clemson game, uh, South Carolina pulls out a dramatic win Yeah, I mean, on they had Missouri. a monsoon. They had all kind of stuff going on. They had Skarnickia in there. I'll be honest with you. Skarnickia looks like a better quarterback. He's better. Than Bentley. Yes. He just does. He's, he's better. Maybe doesn't have a strong of an arm, but who cares? He makes better decisions. He makes better decisions. It seems like the team plays better when he's in there. I don't know if Bentley's getting his job back. He shouldn't. No, this I is. I wouldn't. No, if I'm a South Carolina fan, I am on Skarnecki train. Right. Like, th- this guy's the better player. He yeah. gives us a chance. Uh, so then, after that, we're going to a bye week for uh, the Clemson Tigers and NC State. Yep. So before we get into the Wake Forest game, uh, they will both come in undefeated. I believe that game is in Death Valley. It's in Death Valley. I'm right. Uh, give me your NC State has a 10 being. Uh, like a really good chance and zero being no chance at all. What are chances NC State comes in and makes the upset? Three. I put it there too. They have some chance. I uh, mean, it's football and they're 18 and 20 year old kids. There's always a chance. Yep. But logically, this is going to be an ugly game. This is not going to be one of the past games for the past three or four years where it's yeah. tied at the end, blah, blah, blah. It's not going to be good for NC State. I would say, like, I would give myself like a 1%. A one chance to hit a pitch from Clayton Kershaw, yep. and NC State has a slightly better <laughs> chance to beat Clemson than I could hit something Clayton Kershaw threw at me. Yeah, I agree. I, I'll um, be honest with you. I think the Syracuse game, all the drama leading up to the Syracuse game, um, all the drama during the Syracuse game was mm-hmm. the best thing that could have happened to this particular Clemson team. I think they're cohesive now. If they weren't before, they're a unit. I think they're they have each other's backs if they didn't. I'm not saying they didn't have that before. Yeah. But all this drama leading up to this where they proved they could win in a bad situation, uh, as a team, you can't replace that. It can be unifying. It, it's unifying. To yeah. overcome those things together. Uh, just an all-around, obviously, just a, a whipping of Wake Forest. Uh, Look, man. It was ugly. Yeah, it was ugly. You have three running backs with over 125 yards each. Feaster probably would have done that if he mm-hmm. hadn't got a AC socket sprain on his shoulder. Yeah. Uh, well, I thought he dislocated, to be honest with you. But other than that, I mean, there's – how about Hunter Renfro playing quarterback? And punter. And punter. But if you watch his play where he was quarterback 
and he got that block for Lin J. Dixon on the awesome. touchdown. I was like, where did this dude come from? He was incredible. Yeah, Dabo said he was shot out of a cannon down the sideline. He was. Yeah. And yeah. he made the block to score the touchdown. Without that block, he doesn't score. Yeah, he sealed it for him. Yeah, he, it, was un, it was unbelievable. The, the Let me ask you this. Did it feel like Wake Forest quit? It, it was Clemson playing well, but it yeah. also felt like Wake Forest said, all right, I, we're I don't, done. I don't know if Wake Forest quit so much as the drive was taken from them. If that makes sense, sure. Like I don't think they okay. they willingly gave up the game. I think Clemson imposed their will so much that there was not much that Wake Forest could do about it. I think that's that's fair. Um, it's kind of like when you're in a fight and you beat the guy into submission. Yeah, that's what happened in the Wake Forest game. The guy didn't give up. He was just beat into submission. And that's what happened to Wake Forest. It's really just pounded into the ground. Oh my goodness, a beat down. Um, so we're halfway through the season. I have one more topic for you, and it comes in two two part question: Is to attack Viola the first week, first half of the season Heisman winner, and what does Travis Etienne have to do to get in that conversation? The number one is yes. I think he I is. I think it's obvious. Mm-hmm. Number two is keep doing what he's doing. Yeah. I mean, he is absolutely an insane running back. If there's a better running back in the country, and people say Dylan, you know, up north and blah, 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 there's not a better, more no. explosive, powerful running back than no Etienne in the country. No. And if there is, you prove it to me. Tell you, I thought – I'll be going into the season. I thought he would be at the top of the depth chart, and someone would pass him. I was actually thinking he had that freshman year thing yeah. that some guys do, and they were. Then you get to figure him out. He has blown my mind. I tried mind. to tell you preseason. Look, Etienne is no joke. This kid is for real. He might be the best player on offense. On a that's on a team with T. Higgins and Justin Ross and Trevor yeah, he's, Lawrence. He's definitely the MVP of the offense. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe the team, but the defense is, has so many good players. Right, it's and hard to say that they're more of a unit. Right, he has, ch- he just changes everything. Th- just mechanically, the way he runs, if you watch him, his pad level is so low, his head is, his shoulders are so low, and his waist and his knees are so high, it makes no. He looks awkward when he when he has the ball, but he's so low and so fast, <laughs> he, you can't get a good beat to tackle the guy. Yeah, he's it sure he's is effective. Compact. It's weird and it's effective. It's weird, and he looks like a. A crab running 90 miles an hour. So next week there will be no Clemson talk. They will not be playing, uh, but we'll do all the other things that come in for college football. So thanks for coming in and talking sports. I appreciate it. We'll be back with another new edition of the show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.